Welcome to Better Food Stories, a show that celebrates real food and the people and companies who make it. I'm your host, Audrea Greenhoff, and in this podcast, I'm sitting down with the entrepreneurs behind some of today's most innovative food brands to find out what it really takes to make it in this highly competitive space. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Better Food Stories podcast. I am your host, Audrea Greenhoff, and on today's episode, I am excited to introduce you to food blogger Don Bayaki. He is the voice photographer and mastermind behind paleoglutenfreeguy.com. This is a fantastic blog that showcases recipes that are all paleo-friendly, gluten-free friendly, Whole30 friendly, um, just totally relatable, wonderful recipes. You definitely want to follow Don on social media to get a look at this awesome content as well. Um, I'm excited for this interview. We talk all about what it's like to start and grow a food blog in 2020. Don shares his own experience in growing his platform as well as his advice for new food bloggers He really gets deep into how he's using social media strategically to grow his audience, how he strategizes his content, and everything else that you kind of would want to know of what it's like to be a food blogger. He's taking us behind the curtain and giving a lot of great insight. So I will stop talking and let you in on this interview. As always, you can get the show notes for this and every episode on my website, audreagreenhoff.com slash podcast. Now on to my interview with Don. Thanks so much for having me. Why don't we start with you giving us a little rundown for anyone who is not familiar with your blog that is Paleo Gluten-Free Guy. This is a gem um, on the internet of food blogs. Tell us a little bit about what this blog is all about. Sure. Um, So Paleo Gluten-Free Guy is a food blog where I share recipes that are entirely gluten-free and mostly paleo um, because that's the way I eat. And so for those who don't know, paleo means grains, dairy, sugar, or legumes. Um, I feel really great eating this way and wanted to help others feel great while eating delicious food too. Um, because when you look at the statistics around health in the U S, um, and you were not, we're not doing so great. And our culture is set up where the unhealthiest choices are also often the easiest and cheapest, unfortunately. So I just thought my blog inspires people to a get in the kitchen and cook for themselves and others to begin with. And B, cook amazing food that also happens to avoid a lot of the foods that can cause us health problems, whether we realize it or not. Um, so basically, I just want people to be happy and healthy. I love that. And I love the, the idea behind it. I myself um, have done a lot of research in both paleo and gluten-free. So it made me excited when I discovered you and this blog. I have a lot of skin allergies. So that kind of led me down the path of doing a lot of research and it's been the way that I eat too for a while. Right now, things are a little bit different because I'm actually pregnant. So congratulations. Thank you. Things have changed a little bit in the way that I'm eating, but I I do agree with you in the the way that it makes me feel. And I think it's fantastic. So how'd you come up with this idea? What inspired this blog? So I've been cooking and baking for about 20 years. Um, but about 10 years ago, I started connecting some dots with health issues I was having and went 
not only gluten-free, but full-on paleo. Um, and like I said, I, I just immediately started feeling better. So many issues that I was having cleared up. Uh, even issues that I didn't realize were connected to what I was eating, like my allergies got a lot about, got a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, I stopped getting colds as often, you know, things I didn't even realize were going to get better, got better. Um, so I would occasionally share what I cooked on Facebook and then Instagram and people not only liked it, but they were often kind of amazed, like, wait, you're paleo, but you can eat that. Or it'd be like, oh, you're paleo, but what you're eating is pretty normal. Cause you know, a lot of what I'm eating is just like, you know, meat and potatoes or, you know, things everyone eats. Um, and also because of the way I eat, I often have very limited choices. If I go out to a party or to a restaurant or someone's house for dinner or whatever. So I wanted to show people that eating paleo isn't that weird and also make sure people who are paleo have recipes for things they want to eat. Um, even if, and even if you're not paleo, these are recipes that will work for you anyway. Yeah. And I love that you mentioned that because sometimes I feel like all, we get turned off, you know, by the fact like, oh, some, some sort of like gluten-free or paleo or keto or something. It's all of a sudden we get defensive and it feels restrictive right off the bat. And I think sometimes we eat dishes like this and we don't even realize it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Like I said, I mean, if you're um, a meat and potatoes kind of person, then like, guess what? That's, that's um, paleo, you know, like roast chicken and veggies, you know, a lot of these things um, are, are paleo. And like you said, you don't even realize it. So is your blog something that you're doing full time? Are you working and also doing this? Tell me a little bit about that. So this is something I do part-time. Um, I do have a full-time day job, and this blog is my hobby for nights and weekends. Um, that might change in the future, but I've only been blogging for about a year and a half now, so I'm not really anywhere close to making it a career yet. I love your social media, and your food photography is amazing. Oh, thank you. I'm interested in knowing, how do you come up with, first of all, you're, are you taking all your pictures? Yeah, I take all my pictures on my iPhone. Oh my gosh, they're really, really great. I love them. How do you come up with the recipe ideas? Um, so I basically just think, like, what do I want to eat? <laughs> um, before going paleo, I was a big foodie, and I loved trying as many new foods and dishes as possible. Um, so it's a little frustrating that I can't just eat whatever I want anymore, but that does inspire me to create my own version of something. Like, what can't I eat anymore that I really want to? So... Um, I came up with fried chicken and I'm working on a peach cobbler and I, I just want the same options that everyone else has, but I also want to be able to say, have friends or family over that are not gluten-free or paleo and serve them food that I can eat, but that they would also like. Um, so I really, I'm really just thinking about selfishly, what, what do I want to eat? And I go from there. That's fantastic. So as part of your process, you know, a lot of people who listen to this blog are either content creators or aspiring content creators. What's your process of planning out your content? Um, you know, planning out your recipes, you're saying it's basically cooking things that you would like to eat yourself. Are you, especially that you have a full-time um, job outside of this, are you planning content way in advance? Are you thinking about holidays? What's your process like to Um, kind of streamline your content? Yeah, that's a great question because this is something that's an ongoing process for me is 
is tweaking my actual process. And so mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of spreadsheets. Um, and so I have a spreadsheet content calendar that I have planned out. Um, I plan out specific recipes for the next couple of months. And then after that, I just have some basic ideas for October. I think I want to do this in November. I think I want to do that. Um, and so, and, and on this calendar, you know, it has all the dates, but then it also includes the holidays. So I make sure I'm keeping things relevant. And then once I think I know what I want to make, I then do my keyword research, which is basically using a few tools to see, you know, is this something that people actually search for? Is this something people actually want to make? Um, you, you know, want to find a good balance of something that people are actually searching for without it being so highly competitive that there's no way you would rank very well for it on Google. Mm -hmm. um, so I then use that to sort of inspire my ideas like, okay, I know I want to make my version of a broccoli salad. It's summer. That's something I like to have, you know, at cookouts and whatnot. Um, what's the best way for me to make it so that I enjoy it and my audience enjoys it, but also what's the best way to write about it so that people on Google or wherever will find it. Um, so then that helps me tweak my content calendar as I go along. That's really interesting. And I like that there is, you're being methodical about it. So it isn't just content for yourself, although partially it is, but you are doing that research and being intentional about what your audience might connect with. Yeah, exactly. Because it's, even if I'm creating recipe, you know, that, that, you know, I like, and is for myself, um, there's a certain way you can write about it so that, you know, it, it, um, connects with Google with certain phrases and keyword terms so that people find it. So it's not just necessarily inspiring the recipe itself, but also the way you write the post about it. Right. That makes total sense. Have you been surprised um, with the performance of certain posts? I know that happens sometimes to me with the, uh, the podcast episodes that I'll think a podcast episode is going to do really, really well. And at the end, it kind of is meh. And sometimes it's been the opposite that I'm like, well, I don't really know that this topic is gonna, you know, do amazing, but let's try it out. And it ends up really surprising me. Have you had the same experience? Oh, my God, completely. It is so funny. I am the worst predictor of what will actually be popular and what will not be. Um, I don't know what that says about me as a blogger, but my most popular post is just called The Four Best Ways to Cook Parsnips. And I don't know if you're familiar with parsnips. They're a vegetable that I happen to love and, and cook with a lot. And I don't see a lot of people using them or cooking with them. So I I just wrote this this post about some ways to cook them. Um, and I really thought, you know, no one really cares about this vegetable. Like this, this isn't, you know, this isn't going to be a big deal. It has been my most popular recipe by far for longer than I, I can keep track of. So I had no idea, idea that was going to happen. And then, like you said, other things that I think are just going to be a complete slam dunk, um, have not turned out that way. Like I created a recipe for pumpkin spice candied bacon, um, Ooh. Which, awesome. thank you like I, I thought so and you know everyone loves pumpkin spice and you know anyone who eats bacon likes bacon I thought this would be like combining the best of both worlds and it just has been sort of had a, had a meh response like you said so I just I, I never really know 
Yeah, I think so much of it, you know, you can do the keyword research and all of that, and it's helpful, but so much of it is kind of trial and error. And as you're building your audience, I think that you get to know them. And have you tried based on the ones that are performing well to do um, other content, either like in that format or on the same topic? Maybe you try another parsnip one and see how it goes. You know, a... If I was smarter, I would have started doing that earlier. Uh, I did realize that a little while ago um, that I should create similar posts to the ones that do well. So I am working on that kind of content. And it's and it's helpful because you already have a template laid out for you, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do have a few other parsnip recipes, um, but I am working on similar sort of vegetable tutorials. I have a sheet pan recipe that does well. So I'm working on more sheet pan recipes. So I am trying to use that now as inspiration for future posts. I love that. And I think that's part of the fun, right? Because it's sort of like figuring out a puzzle. You're like, okay, well, is it parsnips that people are really into? Or is it this four ways to do X that people are resonating with? And then you try it out and you kind of see. So I think that that is part of what's so fun about creating content. Yeah, totally. I like I like that way of thinking about it like a puzzle because you're really trying to help people. That's that's the whole point of your food blog. Um, so it's kind of like a fun creative challenge to figure out what people want and what's something that will help them. You mentioned um, when we initially exchanged emails that social media has been a big part of you growing your audience. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you're doing to connect with people on different channels? Sure. So um, like most bloggers, most of my traffic actually comes from Google. But after that, I really rely on Pinterest and then to a lesser extent, Facebook and Instagram for traffic, among other things. Um, so with Pinterest, I had, I already had a personal account, but when I opened up a business account for my blog, I knew I'd have to learn how to really use it properly. So I found a course called Carly's Pinteresting Strategies. She's a mommy blogger who has really mastered Pinterest and has a lot of really great tricks that I would not have learned on my own or, and I haven't seen them anywhere else. And her method doesn't even rely on having like a Tailwind account or, or any kind of scheduler. You do everything manually. Um, and it's worked really well for me. Um, it's really affordable. I, I wasn't in a place where I could spend a lot of money on courses at the time. And I think it's like $57 or something like that. And she regularly updates it when Pinterest updates their algorithms. Um, so I, this is not an ad. I don't make affiliate sales. This is just <laughs> where I started as a blogger learning about Pinterest. Um, and there are other Pinterest courses that I've seen recommended by food bloggers. Some are cheaper or free, some are more expensive. Um, but I really like this one because like I said, she updates it. And so Pinterest has changed a lot since I first took the course. They recently revealed that they are really pushing for content creators to create fresh pins as often as possible. And those, mm-hmm. pin, those creators will get priority in people's feeds. So now I'm creating about three to five different pins for every recipe, which is not something I used to do. I would create, you know, one. Um, so that's changed and that's helped helped me recently with uh, Pinterest. Um, but even regardless of that specific change, I find that if you know how to use Pinterest and you know how to use your Pinterest keyword research and you know how to create great pins, People on Pinterest will find you, will find your recipes, and most important, will find your website. 
So that's a great way to build up your audience. It's not as personal as some of the other platforms, though. Um, I get less traffic from Facebook and Instagram, but I use both of them because these are platforms where I really get to connect with people, like you mentioned. Um, I have a business page on Facebook where I not only post my recipes, but other people's recipes and articles and just stuff I think my audience will find helpful. And I know that because they tell me. <laughs> um, that's the great thing about Facebook is it's interactive and it's a great way to learn what your audience wants. You can set up polls and surveys or just flat out ask people what you want to know from them. Um, you can also join Facebook groups that are relevant to what you do and have sort of the same audience that you have or are looking for. I belong to a few that have the same focus my blog does. So I either engage with other members or I post my own recipes or both, depending on what the group allows and what the rules are. Um, and then for interest or for Instagram, um, I get the least amount of traffic from Instagram, but I get the most engagement. Um, Instagram is a really great way to interact with both your own audience, but also other food bloggers. Um, it's really where people can get to know you as a person, both through your feed and your stories. And that connection can go a long way toward building your audience. Um, people talk on Instagram, you know, people share recipes that they've made. So if they've made your recipe and share it, they're basically recommending you to all of their followers. And so Instagram really is a network and is a great way to spread your reach as much as possible. So those are the three main social media platforms I focus on and each one has a slightly different advantage than the others. And have you found that from when you first started to now, have those strategies changed? Like what did you initially start doing and how did that evolve? So when I initially started my Instagram account, I didn't have a lot of my own content. You know, I, um, my Instagram account had actually been live before my website was. Uh, but even when I launched my website, you know, I started with six recipes and I was updating a new recipe once a week. Um, and I knew I wasn't going to be the kind of Instagrammer that posts something new every day. I think that's fine. It, that works for some people, but I just knew that wasn't going to be the way I do it. But I wanted to post more than once a week. Um, so I would often post um, other recipes that I made that I thought fit my niche that I could recommend to people. I would post about cookbooks. I would post about my meal planning and like what I made for lunches for the week. And I just found ways to sort of fill out my feed for people in ways that I thought was helpful. Um, now that I've been doing it for longer, I still do some of that, but most of that other content is something I will maybe not put in my stories. And I'll save my feed just specifically for my recipes. It gives my feed a more coherent look. So if people find my profile, they immediately get an idea of what I have to offer. Um, yeah. And then I can kind of make it more personal and fun in my story so people get more behind the scenes look at my day-to-day -day life that way. Um, with Pinterest, like I said, I used to just create one pin per recipe. Now I'm creating three to five uh, at the beginning when I first post a new recipe. And then sometimes down the line, a month, a couple months later, I'll create a new pin just to kind of keep the wheels turning a little bit. Um, and with Facebook, what's changed is I, Facebook is an ongoing experiment for me. Um, Facebook does not like it when you are posting 
things that get people off of Facebook, meaning like a link to a website for a recipe. Facebook right. wants people on Facebook. So those posts might not have the reach that you would want them to, but I'm experimenting with other ways to use it. Like I said, with following people and, um, you know, trying to engage them in different ways, maybe providing exclusive recipes that are only on Facebook, you know, right there in the post. They don't have to click on a link to go somewhere else. So I'm experimenting with it because a lot of people who are on Facebook or who follow me on Facebook are not on Instagram. So they aren't seeing that content. So it's about finding different ways to package it for my Facebook audience. Yeah, that makes sense. Facebook is, is tricky, I feel, too. I feel like they don't like a lot of things. So And they change their mind. <laughs> on, right? <laughs> yes, yes. And it's different because with Instagram, it's so much easier through hashtags and through engaging with other accounts to um, kind of promote yourself. Whereas on Facebook, it's just not as obvious how you're supposed to, you know, help people find your Facebook page. It's just not as intuitive and it's not as easy, quite frankly. So yeah, Facebook definitely has its own challenges. Definitely, I agree. So you mentioned, um, you know, you are doing this part-time. You talked a little bit about maybe that one day changing into having this be your full-time gig. When you started, was it something that it was more for fun or did you go into it really thinking of ways to monetize right from the get-go or, um, you know, has that been something that you're thinking about more now that you're really building your audience? Yes, it's been very much on my mind from the beginning. Um, like I said, I've been um, cooking and eating paleo for about 10 years now. And I had resisted starting a blog for a while because it can be expensive. You know, testing a recipe over and over again, all those groceries, especially if it doesn't work and then you have to, you know, throw it out, that can get really expensive. And I wasn't in a place where I either could afford it or would really have the patience to do that. Um, so I decided when I started my blog, I was going to treat it in such a way that I was going to take it seriously, treat it almost like a business. And I knew that um, it's, it's, a slow process. You definitely have to think of the long term. It's not going to start making money overnight, right. but um, you know, eventually applying for ad networks and eventually creating my own e-products and things like that is definitely something that I'm working toward because I do want it to make some amount of money, even if it's never you know a full-time income. I would like to get some money back from it, considering I'm putting money into it. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. And I think that's the case for a lot of people. I think that while there are a lot of people who, you know, do this full time, I think sometimes um, it's a way to create just one revenue stream, right? I you hear a lot about online business having people work on multiple revenue streams. And I think blogging is one really popular way to do that. But like you said, it does take time. Um, but I think it's something that you know, if you have a passion for it, a lot of people are interested in. So there's still a lot of opportunity there. Totally agree. What are some, now that you're a bit of a seasoned blogger, what are some mistakes? And I put that in quotes because I don't really believe in mistakes if you're learning from things. 
Um, what are some mistakes that you see some bloggers and influencers making today? I think it kind of depends on the platform, but there are a few things that I've seen repeatedly that I've been a little bit surprised about. Um, one is not doing their research. Uh, as bloggers, we as bloggers we do a lot. So we have recipe development and testing, writing, the keyword research, the competitor research, learning how to run a website, the photography, you know, all this stuff. And also managing all these different social media platforms. So it's not as if we have a lot of free time. But if you're going to have a Pinterest or Facebook or Instagram account, you find at least one resource that will help you get the most out of it. You don't have to pay for it necessarily. There are a ton of free articles and YouTube tutorials and whatnot. But find at least one person or one source, try what they recommend and see if it works. And if not, you can always adjust your approach. But, you know, Google, Pinterest, all these platforms have their own algorithms and their own quirks. And it's really up to us to learn what we can learn about them because none of them are as straightforward as they seem. And once you start doing your research on them, you realize how true that is. And so you really start to know what you don't know. And that can, you know, inspire you to keep learning. Um, two, what I've also seen happen sometimes is you can't just post and then disappear. If Facebook or Instagram see people engaging with your post, they'll push it out to more people. So if someone leaves a comment, you have to reply to it. Um, or on Instagram, you know, you can use hashtags. So click on a hashtag you use on your post and see who else recently used it and interact with them. And they might click through your profile, see you posted something similar and realize you have similar interests and then you just got a new follower. So you can't just post and walk away and you can't even really just post and then only respond to comments on your own post. You have to go out there and find the big and mid-level bloggers in your niche and start engaging with their content as well. Um, and three, and you know, I'm saying this third, but this is actually probably the most important one is losing sight of that it's all about the content. You can be an absolute master at every social media platform, but if your website is slow or if your post isn't well-written or helpful, or most importantly, if your recipes aren't well-written or don't work, it doesn't really matter what else you do on social media. Um, unfortunately, I do see food bloggers who just don't know how to write a recipe the ingredients are in the wrong order or the instructions are confusing. Um, but from the minute someone clicks on your blog, basically to the minute they take their first bite of your recipe that they made, the whole user experience should be in service of them getting exactly what they want. And it's easy to lose track of that because like I said, we as food bloggers have to focus on learning and doing so many things that the content itself can often you know, sort of fall by the wayside. Yeah, and I love that you mentioned that because I think that's such a core of food blogging is, you know, the value and the consistency of the recipes themselves. And it's happened to me that I'll look for, you know, I'll be looking to make a certain dish or, or recipe and I start browsing through blogs and, you know, even just the layout of, of the recipe can be more attractive on one blog versus another and just the way that it looks visually would make a difference of whether or not I try somebody's recipe over another. Um, you know, just clean and consistent and 
you know, easy to follow. I think even that it could be essentially the same exact thing, but just the way that it's presented, I think sometimes makes a really big difference. Absolutely. You know, we respond psychologically to all these little cues, all these little stimuli um, from what we're looking at. And so, and you don't have to necessarily know, you know, people respond to green like this and blue to this. So use green or whatever. Um, but you do have to think about the user experience and how easy it is for someone to use your site. And sometimes it really is as simple as making sure it says, clean and easy to follow as possible. You know, sometimes it's just the basics that make a big difference. And when it comes to writing and especially writing recipes, was how did how did you develop um, this skill? Did you take courses or anything like that? Um, I had read a book a while ago called Will Write for Food, and it was by a food writer. Um, and she, I believe her name is Diane Jacobs. She addresses specifically how to write a recipe. You know, the ingredients have to be listed in the order that you use them in the recipe. Um, and there's there's a few other kind of guidelines to follow. Um, but also, I've been cooking for a really long time. I am a huge cookbook fanatic. I, I own, I think, upwards of like 80 or some cookbooks. So I have just developed my own opinions of like what I think works and what doesn't. And I, when I use a recipe that I think works and is written well, I note what specifically about it that I'm responding to so well. And I try to incorporate that as much as I can in my own recipe writing. And then also it's getting feedback from people who use your recipes. If I think something is really clear and then, you know, I'll hear from someone else who is looking at the recipe or made the recipe that maybe wasn't as clear for them, then I am trying to understand, I'm trying to think of the audience as I'm writing it to preemptively think of any questions they might have to make it as clear as possible. Yeah, that makes sense. And that goes back to doing everything in service of your audience, right? And I think sometimes that can be a challenge because, you know, you yourself know what you're trying to convey. And if someone comes back, you could be like, well, what are you talking about? This is so clear. So I think that, um, you know, it's always good to be in service and to be receptive of feedback so that you can improve. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes, you know, to be honest, sometimes it is user error. You can write your recipe as clearly as possible and someone, you know, might still make a mistake and botch the recipe. You, you can't possibly write in a way to somehow make sure no one ever makes a mistake or ever gets confused ever. But I think it does help as you're writing through the recipe, you know, could this be interpreted any different way? Will someone really understand what this means? You're just, like we've both said, you're just thinking of the audience and trying to make it as user-friendly for them as possible. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of people, I think, would argue that, you know, there are a lot of food blogs out there. There's a lot of food writers out there. So this space, um, in a sense, you know, can be considered overcrowded. What advice would you have to someone who is thinking about starting out or just starting out, but is kind of um, intimidated by how much competition there is out there? Yeah, that's a really good question because that's something I've had to deal with myself uh, as a somewhat newer blogger. So 
first of all, I would say that their argument is correct. Actually, it is really crowded. Um, <laughs> so I, I can't really deny that or disagree with that. But the way I think about it is if the world only needed one chocolate chip cookie recipe, no one would have bothered after the first chocolate chip cookie recipe came out, you know, but not everyone has the same taste. So maybe one recipe is too much brown sugar. So I need to go find another one that I like better. I mean, we can all learn so much from each other. We can all bring our unique experiences and tastes to the table, so to speak. So what I recommend is if you can really clarify to yourself why you're blogging and what you offer that no one else can, you'll create unique content that really serves and helps people and deserves to take up space, even if it's just online space. Um, so that's really my advice, to be really really specific about what you're doing, why you're doing it, and who you're doing it for. And when I say specific, I mean be really specific. It can't just be, you know, I make recipes everyone would like. That's the ideal. Yes, you you would hope that everyone would want to make and, and love your recipes, but that's not really very realistic. And it leads to an unfocused blog that will confuse people who visit it. You have to know exactly who you are and you have to be really specific and know exactly who your audience is. And I love that you said that. I've spent, um, you know, a lot of time working in marketing and working with a lot of, I worked in agencies and worked with a lot of different types of brands um, doing copywriting and, and marketing. And so many times people get caught up with that, right? Like you want them to take a point of view so that you can write something for them or create some kind of campaign and they are afraid of saying, oh, well, I don't wanna, you know, make content specifically for this kind of person because I'm afraid that everybody else isn't gonna like it. And then it ends up being not useful for anybody because you're trying to please everyone. So I think that can be such a challenge. I've seen it so many, even with big companies, I think I've seen it as such a challenge that people are afraid to have a point of view and take a stance on something. Um, when really that is kind of the magic, not the magic bullet, but it's sort of, you know, the most important thing. Totally agree. That's funny because I actually, I work in marketing too. Um, so I am familiar with this concept <laughs> you're talking about. Um, and I mean, I get it, you know, in an ideal world, I would have the biggest audience possible, you know? Um, but I also know that that's not really possible. So I myself have been struggling with how do I create and write about these recipes in a way where do I write about them so that they're super specific and I, you know, label all of them paleo, gluten-free, whole 30, um, or will that turn people off? And am I denying myself a broader audience? And I keep going back and forth about this, this, you know, um, question that I'm having. So I, I do have my specific audience in mind and I'm just trying to keep that in mind what is the most helpful thing for them? But yeah, it's 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 tricky. You really, you know, obviously you want as big an audience as possible. Yeah, and I think the good news is that you can always change your mind, right? And that's where, you know, I, I struggle too sometimes with the focus of the podcast or certain projects that I'm working on, but that doesn't mean just because you made a decision that that is like forevermore, um, you know, holy grail decision. You cannot go back. You cannot change things ever. Um, and I think that the more that you kind of give yourself grace and permission to pivot and switch gears, if you decide that something else is working better for you, 
um, you can always do that. Nobody's gonna, you know, banish you for taking an, a, a turn to something else. Yeah, that's so true. There's no blog police. You know, exactly. No gonna come along and like, you know, <laughs> take down your blog or anything like that. So that's a really, really good point and a really good way to keep things in perspective. Uh, yeah, I love that you pointed it out. Well, this has been super fun. I've loved getting to know you and, you know, how you started this blog and about your process. Before we wrap up, I always do uh, kind of off-topic closing questions with all my guests. Are you up for that? Yeah, totally. Let's do it. Okay. So number one, what is the last movie or TV show that you watched? Um, the last TV show I watched last night was an episode of Tales from the Loop on Amazon Prime. Um, it's like, it's like a sci-fi drama based on, um, the book of the same name by a Swedish artist named Simon Stalinhog. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. That makes it sound really pretentious or weird, and I have no idea who that artist is. Um, but it's really just about this small American town and it really emphasizes the drama and just happens to have some sci-fi elements to it. So it's, it's actually really quiet, but really kind of fascinating. So that's what I've been into lately. Cool. I like that. I'll have to check that out. Number two, if you could only eat three foods for the rest of your life, what would they be? Oh man, this is so hard. <laughs> Now, especially that you're a food blogger and this is a food podcast, it's the hardest question for everybody, but in a perfect world somewhere that you, without calories, without repercussions, what would they be? Yeah. Um, okay. I think, uh, I think one would be plantains because I just love plantains and they're strangely versatile. So you can actually, you know, eat them a lot of different ways. Um, and the second one, I think, I'm just going to say pork in, in a general um, term because you can get so many delicious things from it that I love, like, you know, bacon and prosciutto and salami. And you there's like the lean pork and there's like the fatty pork. So like, I'm just I'm just going to say pork. <laughs> I don't know if that if that counts, but I'm just going to go with that. Um, and then the third one, I think. Um, I mentioned chocolate cookies before, and they tend to always be on my mind. So I would say like a warm chocolate chip cookie with a bit of sea salt on top. Ah, oh, that sounds so good. I am such a chocolate chip cookie person. My favorite. I love that. I, I love them. I, although I will say I believe the chocolate chunk cookie is superior to a chocolate chip cookie. But I mean, either way, they're good. Yes, I agree. No, no argument there. Absolutely. And to give you something to think about, especially in your recipe development, plantains, specifically sweet plantains, are one of my favorite things in the world. My parents are Cuban, so I grew up eating not only pork, but sweet plantains. I love them on anything. Uh, that's not so good. In South Florida, and there is a, it's sort of like a Latin-infused taco place um, near my house that they have a pulled pork taco that they put little bits of sweet plantain on top of it. Oh, my God, that sounds like my heaven. It's it's amazing. So if you're looking for something to play around with in the kitchen, I believe that is both paleo and gluten-free. <laughs> uh, totally. I am definitely, uh, definitely going to have to look into how to make this for myself. That sounds amazing. <laughs> okay, number three. 
Where is your favorite place that you've ever traveled to? Italy. I just, I just, I've been a couple of times now and I just love it. I couldn't even name like a specific place because each place has its own unique charms and feel and vibe to it. So um, you combine all of them together and it just adds up to such a fantastic experience. And so, yeah, I just, I love Italy and I wish I could go back like every year. Yeah. And the food is, is so good too. And the food is so good. And they're actually a very gluten-free friendly country which is surprising because you think like the land of pasta, they would be really, I don't know, kind of strict about it, but they they want everyone to be able to eat all their delicious food. So they're actually very gluten-free friendly, which I was very surprised and pleased about last time I went. Yeah, definitely. Number four, what is one thing most people would never guess about you? Um... I would say that I don't drive because I think everyone just assumes that everyone else drives. Um, and I can drive, but I don't. So I was in a, in a bad accident when I was 20 and I just haven't been able to drive since then. Um, but I live in a big city with a lot of public transportation options and I have a very patient boyfriend with a car. So if we need to drive somewhere, we can. But yeah, I, I don't drive. And if it ever comes up in conversation, people are always really surprised about it. Interesting. I don't blame you. I hate driving. It's one of my like most dreaded tasks. And unfortunately, I live in a city where you kind of have to drive. Uh, the South Florida public transportation isn't the best out there. Um, but I feel you. If I didn't have to and I had the option that I could get around without it, I wouldn't drive either. I think it's overrated yeah I'm very fortunate in that way and if I if I did live in a city where I had to drive you know I would you know I think I have to learn how to how to make myself do it again but if I if I don't have to I'm not gonna do it yeah no totally I don't blame you well thank you again so much I think this conversation was so fun and I think our audience is gonna get so much out of it one more time if people want to learn more about you and your blog where can they go online yeah thank you so much for having me I loved talking about all this stuff uh, people can find me at paleoglutenfreeguide.com and so then on Pinterest Facebook and Instagram it's that same handle